Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, police papers say the country's 111 emergency call system is so outdated there's evidence it's causing deaths and injuries. A host of glaring shortcomings in the 25-year-old system are revealed in year-old papers which have newly been released under the Official Information Act. Those papers show the system broke down 59 times between 2021 to 2022. A project to replace the system was dropped, though, by the previous government due to high costs. Now, the police minister and police have this morning responded to our inquiries about that. Phil Pennington is with us now to talk further about this. Uh, kia ora, good morning, Phil. We'll get to the police uh, minister's uh, response in a moment. But first of all, just run us through, if you can, what has been going wrong with the, with the system. Morena Ingrid, well, a lot has been going wrong. It is old, it is fragmented, it is outdated, uh, 25 years old. It's sort of a very complex patch to give together system, not only taking the calls, but they're routing the calls, and then it's the system that they use to decide who responds, which fire trucks, which police cars, and it's a shared system between both of them. So the problems that face the police, they also face fire and emergency, and a system that takes between one and two million calls a year. Now, some of these glaring shortcomings, they're actually exemplified in a 150-page business case that went to Cabinet last year. It says a major flaw is that this is a system that primarily, principally takes phone calls. It has to take voice. It doesn't take text, it doesn't take visit video, it doesn't integrate with social media platforms and it talks about poor integration between apps. And let me give you some of the examples that are actually in the business case. They're anonymised but they say these actually happened. A woman who is on the phone to police reporting her violent partner, um, he overhears her. Um, by the time police get there eight minutes later, she has been killed. Um, another example they give, and they say there, a modern 111 solution would have let the woman notify the police by another method like text. They talk about a man who drowns at the beach, a person calls 111, an ambulance and paramedic come, but they're too late as he's trying to be revived on the beach. But meantime, police and surf rescue were on the exact same beach, but they did not know such as the fragmentation of this system. And they talk about a third case where firefighters were helping a woman do CPR on a person who had collapsed when confronted by a shooter. Police were at the same time hunting that shooter in that area, but they didn't know what friends of the woman were doing and they weren't there to keep them safe. You can see then what this report says when it says there is increasing evidence that lives, that there are deaths and injuries resulting from the way calls are being handled here. They talk about the system is risking lives. It really pulls no punches at all. And this is the advice, this is the briefing that went to the previous police minister. OK, so it's not new information. Why has nothing uh, been done about it so far? What we see here is therefore the flag has been run up very high by police and fence. They say urgent need. It's a pressing need. Also that the the system that the ambulance, uh, Wellington Free and St John use, they need to integrate, they need to talk to each other, but that's actually a separate system and that doesn't integrate well at all. So they're not talking to each other well either. And this was a plan. This was a project. They wanted to have begun it by now so that by 2030 there would be a fully integrated system. All the figures are are blanked out here but it actually got onto the significant track for the budget 2023 so it's actually on course 
a year ago, and then it doesn't make it past the budget. By August, it's been dropped. When I found about, out about that and asked the last government, they said basically competing priorities, not enough money, and it was dropped at that stage. So you've heard from police and the minister this morning. What have they said? The minister, in a one-line statement at 6.24, he says, I've been made aware of the issue. It's become obvious to us as the incoming government the police have not had core functions funded properly, and he says he's working on that with the police executive. The police are hastening to reassure people. They're saying that they are continuing to use this system, that they are maintaining it. It has serviced the existing system through till 2025, although it says it's not clear what would happen after that. And it hasn't had an update since 2018-19. And we talked about the outages, the breakdowns, a lot of them, 59 in 2021-22, and it taking them a long time, 20 days in one case, where the call takers were having to do these difficult workarounds for 20 days because they couldn't find the flaws in the system. And that's happening again and again and again. And even when they do a planned outage to do an upgrade, They're having trouble getting it back. They're having trouble having to take other things offline. So this is a system that they are patching. It is like a patched tyre. And police say they have made some improvements since last year. But again, it does sound patchy. And then they offer out the carrot that there's a, a consideration, continuing consideration of potential investment. I imagine that's very much the nub of what they are now sitting down with Mark Mitchell about. Can we get the money for this? We need this. I mean, they're very, very clear in this case, and the examples are very clear, glaring and sobering about what's at stake here, and they'll be making that argument again. But they made it a year ago, and it didn't succeed, and now we're being told in the government coffers, well, there's not as much money, and we need to save money. No, and what about other commitments they've made? There's another billion they've committed to emergency communications. Well, yes, that's a very strange thing. The other part of this emergency systems, which broke down during Gabriel, of course, was is that they are rolling out digital radios, $1.4 billion program, so that they don't get caught short with the cell phones falling down, the trucks can't talk to each other, what happened during, during Gabriel. But the trouble is you're basically going to have a, wo- a bird with one wing because the one wing is this digital radio, very fancy, foolproof. But the other wing is this, is this what's called card, and that's the emergency call taking and the response. This is the system that the public talk to, and that is a broken wing. Thank you very much, as always, uh, for that, Phil Pennington. Local Government Minister Simeon Brown is confident that local councils will be capable of developing financially, uh, financially sustainable or stable plans for water infrastructure. This after the government announced yesterday that the Three Waters legislation will be repealed by the end of next week. Simeon Brown joins us now. Kia ora, good morning, Minister. Good morning. Are you confident that an area like uh, the west coast of the South Island, we just spoke to the Buller Mayor this morning, he's extremely worried because even if he joins with other councils in the region, he doesn't believe that they can be any better off and they've got a huge shortfall when it comes to water infrastructure. What do they do? Well, yes, I am confident that councils across the country will be able to form uh, financially sustainable approaches to water. This is what many councils um, campaign for, it's what they, uh, and that's what we're delivering. Uh, we expect councils to be putting forward their plans around financial sustainability. Uh, we expect them to be working with other councils um, in their region or across regions um, to be able to get that. Uh, well, well let, me, let me pick you up there, because he says that if it's just the West Coast councils, it's not going to make any difference. They've got massive shortfalls. It's going to mean big rate increases for water for their residents. He wants well, to join with Canterbury 
but Canterbury doesn't necessarily have to or potentially might not join with them. Well, what will you well, do about that? Those are the conversations that we expect councils to be having as they put to, put forward their plans for financial sustainability. We expect councils will be looking and talking across regions as they set up these plans over the next um, 12 months. And, and that, that could well be part of those conversations. Okay. Just be, the I was point what... here is to be able to set up set a financially sustainable plan. In many cases, that will lead to a council-controlled organisation, which is separate from uh, from the council. That will be able to leverage mm. the, the revenues and borrow more to be able to invest... I understand all that. I want to come back to this issue future. to clarify this because this is a really important example. If the West Coast councils want to join with Canterbury because they've got a much bigger rating base... But Canterbury says, no, we don't want to. What would you do in that instance? Would you ask well, Canterbury well, to, to take them on board? Do they have to? Well, we're expecting councils to be putting forward their plans to be financially sustainable. Those conversations will be led by councils in the first instance. Um, we, will, we will have a regulatory backstop. But ultimately, this is about giving councils the ability to own and operate their own water infrastructure. That's what many councils... Yes, uh, and Canterbury will operate it in in its interests, wouldn't want um, to join with those West Coast councils, and West Coast is in a bind where it needs to. And I'm just curious, what do you do in that instance? Well, we'll be firstly looking to see what is their plans around financial sustainability. Uh, We'll be be then looking at those plans. There will be regulatory backstops if there is uh, inability or councils don't put forward those plans. But at the end of the day, the first instance here is for councils to be putting forward their plans rather than government coming in, spending billions of dollars, setting up mega co-governed entities like the last government did. Yeah, I'm not asking that uh, question, though. I'm asking about the, 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 the West Coast council. council say they've already done a bit of work on this. They did it prior to Three Waters, and they looked at it, and it doesn't make them any better off if they merge. They want to merge with Canterbury. That's what he said this morning. And those are conversations we'd encourage them to be having. Sure, but if Canterbury has to operate in the interest well, of its ratepayers, why would it do stage. that? That's a hypothetical at this stage. We are saying councils need to be putting forward their plans around financial sustainability. Uh, we'll be looking at those plans, but ultimately we, we want councils to be leading those conversations to set up the financially sustainable approach to water. Okay. There will be a number of ways that that can happen, um, and th- whether that's setting up a council-controlled organisation, um, being able to get its debt off balance sheet, being able to get long-term borrowings against its revenues, those are the type of tools that we're going to be enabling and we expect council to be putting forward those plans. Mm. If they put forward a plan which is not satisfactory, if the, the West Coast says Canterbury doesn't want to borrow them and the West Coast puts a plan together and it's not going to be good enough or it, it's just, there's a shortfall, it's too much burden for ratepayers, are you saying that that's when the regulatory option st- is comes into play and what, you would put commissioners in? Well, the first step is to actually get councils to put forward their plans around how they're going to be financially sustainable. We're then providing the legislative tools to enable them to set up um, these uh, cross-regional uh, um, entities uh, in, in order to be able to have long-term funding and financing options around how they make those investments. If a council doesn't put forward a plan, uh, yes, there'll be some backstops. Uh, yes, as I, as I outlined yesterday, we're working through the options around what those will look like. We'll a commissioner? A commissioner? Throughout the year. Well, I mean, there are already plant, there are already um, a range of tools within the local government uh, act in terms of step in powers for for government. We're working through what those options are. I'm not going to I'm not going to say what because we're still working through that particular part of the policy. But we will have a regulatory backstop um, to be able to get in where those councils are unable or unwilling to um, put forward those plans. Okay. Water meters. Is it your expectation that all councils will move to water meters? 
Well, we're not going to be mandating it, but I mean, in terms of many of our cities um, and particularly large towns, it makes a lot of sense. Firstly, you, uh, you reduce leakage significantly. And secondly, you're able to have a much more user pays approach to uh, water consumption. And that then allows for ring fencing of revenues, uh, which is able to then support those, uh, those new entities. It works in Auckland, works in other parts of New Zealand. We think it's a sensible approach, but ultimately that'll be part of the conversations councils we need to have. It you kind of need them all to do yeah. it, really, don't you? Because otherwise you get the situation which is in Wellington, where you, you may have a council which is providing the money to the council control organisation on behalf of a bunch of councils doesn't provide enough money. Or maybe well, they think they yeah. are and you think yeah, they're well, the not. Situation, the situation in Wellington with Wellington Water is it doesn't have ring fence revenue. Uh, the revenue goes to the councils. The councils then have to give money on an annual basis to this entity. It's not a proper CCO. It effectively is a, a delivery agency. Actually, it's not a CCO with ring, its own ring-fenced revenue with revenue sufficiency, which causes all sorts of problems. So we expect the, the councils in Wellington to be working together to actually uh, create a, a proper CCO, which is able to have its own sure, ring-fenced but that's not revenue. My, my question is what happens if there's a dispute as to whether or not a council is providing enough money, if it's handing well, over enough money coming, to that CCO? Well, well I mean, if it's a CCO, uh, the, like, if, for example, Watercare in Auckland, uh, Auckland Council doesn't pay out a cheque to Watercare. It, the revenues come from users, uh, and the users pay that money directly to Watercare, and they have their own revenue stream. Yes, but that's what I mean. Which, you need metres everywhere, otherwise you run into that situation of disputes well, well, over whether I mean, other, other the right amount is paid over. If they, don't want, if they didn't want to use water meters, um, some councils have a, a dedicated um, water uh, bill per rate uh, payer um, that, that simply is then transferred across to that uh, water entity or the water component of the council. So um, those councils will need to make those decisions, but uh, I, I'm a very strong believer in water meters. I think they make a lot of sense. Um, it means that you can reduce leakage and you can also ensure that you have that revenue uh, linked to the, the debt. But ultimately, there are other, other ways that can happen. But honestly, I think in many cases, the answer will be water meters. Yes, but that's still, that's still got the problem. If, you're setting, if you choose not to use meters and you set a bill, a, water, a dedicated water bill, who determines what that amount is and whether it's enough? Well, that'll be set by the, the, the council-controlled organisation. They, they'll be the ones who are in charge of setting those, those costs based on um, how much borrowings, uh, what their investment plans are, what their asset management plan is, um, to ensure that they're able to... Right. So local councillors would not have a say on that? Uh, well, if they set up a CCO, no, that will be, be set by the, the council-controlled organisation. OK. What, do you envisage any instances where the government will have to step in and help some council areas? Uh, obviously, Auckland's been talked about as a special case here. But again, with these smaller rating-based councils, uh, Tararua District, for example, or the West Coast, where you might have to step in and help them. Well, in the, in the first instance, um, yes, we are working with Auckland Council around what legislative options they need uh, because they are a significant size and, and their ability to get balance sheet separation is uh, more challenging. Uh, so we're working, we're working that through at the moment with Auckland Council. But in the first instance, we want councils to be putting forward their proposals around how they're going to be financially sustainable. The point around our policy is to say, actually, this uh, water infrastructure is a local government responsibility. We want you to have financial sustainable sustainability. We want you to be investing in the long term. We want you to show us your plans, uh, and then we'll be going through that process over the next 12 months. Okay. Labor said, did the costings with its proposal with three waters. It 
says that it was promising of somewhere between 2,700 and 5,400 per year in savings by 2054. What are the costings for yours? Well, that, I mean, we, we'll be put, asking councils to be putting forward their financially sustainable approaches to water. We're providing them the tools around how. No, they I understand can that, but have you, can you answer that question? Have you done any costings, similar costings, on what yours is likely well, to depend, be? I mean, the costings the costings depend on what the uh, infrastructure investment is proposed um, over the long term. I note uh, there's different um, estimates around what that investment might look like, but ultimately, what we're saying here is we're wanting councils to be putting forward their plans around financial sustainability, um, ultimately um, by being able to have um, greater access to long-term borrowings, they're able to reduce that cost to consumers. And can you guarantee that it will be savings equivalent or more than what Labor was promising? Well, I think this will be uh, the most efficient way to deliver water infrastructure because it will ensure that councils have that access to long-term borrowings uh, and being able to make those investments over the long yeah, term. The point that's was that's Labor's, Labor's policy very... also was about long-term borrowings as well. That, that's not the question. It, it does well, it provide well, the same well, savings? Well, well, we're not going to... I'm pretty sure we're going to be achieving the, uh, the, the what's required to get those long-term infrastructure investments. Uh, we're also going to ensure that councils have access to that, that the ability to borrow. Um, and we're not going to be spending a billion dollars setting up 10 mega entity co-governed bureaucracies like the last government. So this is going to be a lot cheaper because we're not going to be spending billions of dollars on these co-governed mega bureaucracies. Well, no, I've got to wrap it up, but I'm just going to question you on that because that's a one-off cost. What we're talking about here is about over $100 billion over 30 years, and you're saying, what, that $1 is going to make it all cheaper? Well, we're going to be ensuring that councils have the ability to have uh, the, long, the access to long-term funding and financing to be able to make those investments in their own water infrastructure. They will be in ch- leading those, the delivery of those plans, and we're confident uh, that this will be cheaper than Labor's. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate that this morning. That is the minister, the local government minister, Simeon Brown. Well, a youth law centre says some schools have wrongly denied enrolment to local children. Last month, the Education Ministry intervened after an Auckland school refused to enrol a child living within its enrolment zone. The school had demanded the family produce a 12-month tenancy agreement. Joining us now is Youth Law General Manager Darren Aitchison. Kia ora, good morning, Darren. How unusual is this situation? Do you get a lot of inquiries about enrolments? Uh, yeah, good morning. Um, this particular situation is reasonably unusual, we, but we do get a lot of inquiries about enrolments at this time of year. Um, I think there's 24 law centres around the country. We're the only specialist youth one, but all law centres get these types of inquiries at this time of year where schools are requiring evidence from families that they live in school zones, um, and often that involves doing statutory declarations and other um, documents uh, such as that that the families are required to provide uh, the schools. It is unusual to see um, this particular policy. Um, not all schools require fixed term tenancies. A lot of them um, do require evidence of some description, so they'll be looking for um, tenancy agreements or utility bills, um, yeah, sworn statements, rates, accounts, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, this particular situation, yeah, in our views, definitely um, unlawful, and um, yeah, not something we'd like to see continuing or, or, or get more widespread. What exactly is the law? 
Well, so the law basically uh, says that a, a young person who lives in a school zone must be enrolled by the school. Um, unfortunately, there's no definition of what lives in the zone means. Um, so schools are left to devise their own policies around that sort of thing. And really, they can require some evidence of, of what it means or, or what or to meet the test, whatever the test is that they set. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, in, in our view, requiring a fixed term tenancy would not be lawful. Um, the reason for that is, you know, there's, there's half a million rental accommodation properties in New Zealand, and, and two thirds of those um, are periodic tenancies. So they're tenancies where people won't have fixed term agreements. And essentially, by applying this policy, you would be excluding education from, you know, thousands and thousands of families. So it can't be lawful <laughs> to require a fixed-term tenancy. Um, I mean, if a family rocked up with a fixed-term tenancy, which did cover the full school year, that, that's probably all the school needs is, is to say, OK, well, this person's going to be in this zone for at least 12 months. We're satisfied. They meet the test. Mm. But they shouldn't be requiring it of every family. They need to be much more nuanced about how they do it. And really, the starting point is the right to education. Um, so they should be using this policy reasonably, loosely and flexibly. Okay. Um, the, the other part of this is that you know, the, the, the point of this policy of allowing schools to have zones is to deal with overcrowding. Um, and if there's a problem with overcrowding in a school, they should be dealing with the zone and talking to the ministry and shrinking the zone rather than excluding particular sectors of their community from access to their to their school. I appreciate your time this morning. That is Darren Aitchison, a Youth Law General Manager. Well, the marking of the first anniversary of Cyclone Gabriel has been an emotional time for many who were caught in its path. Many people still can't talk about it and some are still in survival mode, faced with buyouts, insurance or cleaning up their flood-damaged homes. Others are happy to share their stories and the ways in which the flood changed them and their everyday lives. Kate Green has more. A year after the disaster, people who lost their homes are waking in the night and feeling compelled to return. So they drive there at two in the morning to stand in the ruins. Otago University Research Fellow Amber Logan says she's spoken to some of them. She says they're partly doing a reality check, that what happened is not just a nightmare, but there's also a mixture of longing and alienation. Just trying to keep this relationship alive, trying to have some stability in life, trying to feel at home somewhere, uh, and feeling a little bit embarrassed about, about that. Um, and then the home might also be dangerous too, which is the other thing, uh, but still being compelled to go back just to get that sense of home. Amber Logan says some will self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. Reports of death by suicide often filter through the community. She says the level of need for mental health support in Hawke's Bay is far greater than what's available. In Wairoa, Blue Tiger and her two kids had just moved into their new home when the cyclone hit. Her house escaped the flood, but most of their belongings were still in the garage, which was inundated. Everything was. Yeah, like the water came up to here. And now she feels survivor's guilt. I watch my neighbours now and they still can't move into their houses. Um, I hear my neighbour out there every day lifting the floorboards off his, the inside of his house. It's like, all I can do is offer them a meal. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be intrusive, you know, and I know that they're processing things their way as well. She's built a rockery with displaced rocks which floated around in the flood 
and planted a vegetable garden in her daughter's damaged drum kit. Blue Tiger says locals have noticed the Wairoa River flows higher and faster at high tide, so they're taking precautions. We now build everything off the ground. Where everything, like I would honestly like my whole front yard at least a metre off the ground, our shelving's all off the floor. We don't put anything on the floor anymore. Um, our shed is, everything's now hanging off the roof. <laughs> Chief Executive of the Napier Family Centre, Kerry Henderson, says plenty of people are still in survival mode and aren't yet seeking help. I don't think a lot of people are ready to talk, um, but we want them to know that when they are ready, that, that we are here and break down those barriers. It's non-judgmental, it's confidential, it is free, and we won't put boxes around whatever the needs are. She says referrals for couples counselling are through the roof, and requests of any kind spike after heavy rain. The centre is funded for a counsellor dedicated to cyclone trauma, but the relief money is time-locked. Currently, there's $1 million shared by 75 agencies, which needs to be spent by the 30th of June. People don't fit into boxes. You can't then say, OK, Fano, get all your emotions out right now because come 1st of July, you've just got to put it back in a box because there's no funding. And, and life doesn't work like that. The Family Centre is still getting requests for work in schools, where anxiety is high among Tamariki, and she expects the anniversary is a hard time for many. Kate Green with that report. Well, roading networks along the North Island's east coast remain fragile a year after Cyclone Gabrielle. We're joined now by the Transport Agency Waka Kotahi's Acting Regional Manager for Maintenance and Operations, Mark Owen. Kia ora, good morning, uh, Mark. Where are we at in terms of progress on fixing these roads in those cyclone hit areas? Yes, good morning. It's, um, it's amazing, isn't it? One year on, we look back at the devastation we saw 12 months ago. Um, and we've made really good progress to date, but we've still got um, many months or years ahead of, of work to restore the network back to what it was or even better for any potential future events. In, in terms of proportions, um, I see there were about 150 or so uh, damaged sites on the east coast. Where would you be down to now? Um, we, we've made really good progress over the last 12 months. We sort of divide the event up into the initial response, and that's getting the road back open and where we can restoring it two lanes. So we've, we've achieved a lot of that, but we've still got a lot of areas where we need to come back and rebuild something that's more permanent. Uh, for example, things like the Devil's Elbow, just uh, two terra north of Napier, significant damage there. Um, and we've got sort of temporary reinstatement. We've got to come back and look at the long-term, more resilient approach. That's going to take some time. Yeah, I was looking at the map. So a lot open, but with conditions. Absolutely, and a lot more work to come back and rebuild it and put it back to an even better standard than what it was, so we can be more resilient in the future. Where uh, are so we at in terms of that? Better. In terms of that, then building back better. Uh, it's probably uh, two or three years, I think, of work ahead. Um, just really, I mean, the example would be the Waikari Gorge where we lost the bridge, so we've put a Bailey bridge in, so we've got the temporary secure route. But to make that more permanent, we are looking at a total realignment, a new bridge upstream. Uh, to make that route um, more secure between Napier and Wairoa. A massive job, obviously, and millions or billions of dollars worth of infrastructure there. But are you confident, or what assurances can you give that the roads will be more resilient with you know future events? Well, our highways are really the lifelines across New Zealand. They connect communities. They provide those key links for freight and, and people travelling uh, between centres. So we just understand how critical they are. And for a lot of the other services that have provided, the road is the first source of getting from A to B and 
So it's really important that we do that. So we're absolutely committed to to, uh, to putting it back and making it even more resilient. Uh, and we've taken the learnings from other significant events that we've had in previous years, for example, Kaikoura. And using all that expertise, we've uh, developed uh, an alliance team. So we're working with Kiwi Rail and some of the key contractors um, along the East Coast to pull that expertise and look at how we can best deliver and efficiently um, improve the, the connectivity for the East Coast. Appreciate your time this morning. That was Mark Owen. He is uh, Transport Agency Wakakotahi's Acting Regional Manager. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 